Amen. We have so many reasons to be thankful, and the highest, the most foundational, the most precious is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the gospel, that we are no longer under the condemnation and wrath of the Father, but we are now sons and daughters of the Most High King. There is no greater reality on the earth that would produce thanksgiving in our souls and in our hearts. Praise the Lord, we can sing about it, and praise the Lord, we can study about it. We can dive deeper into the glories of the gospel together and of what it produces in our hearts of thanksgiving to God. So if you have your copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. Last week, we began doing a little mini sermon series, just a two-part sermon series on Thanksgiving. And it was, it was really cool how many of you after that service came up and said you were so thankful that we stopped for a Thanksgiving emphasis and didn't run straight to Christmas. You know I love running straight to Christmas. You know I would have my Christmas tree up right now. But because uh, I know there are so many of you, and I didn't even know how many, but so many came up last Sunday and said, I am so grateful that we're doing something on Thanksgiving and not just rushing to Christmas. So two-part sermon series, not rushing to Christmas. We'll get there, don't worry. But we are diving into Thanksgiving. And last week we looked at giving thanks together for who God is and for what he's done. And we stared at Psalm 100 together and dove deep into that Psalm. This morning, what I want to do is ask the question, how now are we supposed to give thanks for each other to God, to give God thanks for each other? So last week we looked at giving thanks together with each other for God and who he is and what he's done. And this morning we're going to take our cue from the Apostle Paul and ask the question, how are we now to give thanks for what God's doing here in our midst for one another? To do this, I want to look at Philippians 1. I want to see Paul's example. Philippians Paul is writing uh, under house arrest and custody in Rome. He is, uh, he's been there for about four years under Emperor Nero, and he is awaiting Nero's final decision about him. And while he's waiting, he's going to write a couple epistles in prison. And in doing so, he's going to send these epistles out, send these letters out to churches that he's visited, that he's helped to start, including this one in Philippi. Ten years ago, before the writing of this little letter, ten years prior, Paul had visited Philippi and had met people there. He had met a jailer because he had been thrown into jail, beaten with Silas and thrown into jail. And after uh, God graciously through an earthquake opened the jail cells, they were all about to escape and the jailer is about to kill himself. And Paul says, we're all still here. He uh, preaches the gospel to the jailer. The, the jailer gets converted. He goes back to his household. Whole household gets saved. We meet a woman named Lydia. We meet some other very different people, socioeconomic differences, but they're all combined around the gospel. And Paul says, now we have a church and now we have a mission in Philippi to go reach this city for Christ. 10 years ago, he'd been thrown into jail, even though he had committed no crime. 10 years ago, he had seen God work in pulling together this small band of believers in a unique Roman colony to start a church. And a decade later, Paul is writing them this letter. And in all honesty, I think this is Paul's favorite church. As you read through this letter, Paul just oozes love for this church. Now, there's things that are wrong in this church. That's why he's addressing them in chapter four with some of the dissensions that's going on. But overall, this is a letter that's just dripping with love for the church and the way that God's working in the church. And that's why he begins with praising God 
for who this church is and how God has worked in their lives. And as we go through this section, this opening chapter and these opening verses, we will see four very clear principles of what biblical Thanksgiving looks like. As we head into this week of Thanksgiving, I want us to be reverberating this, these uh, principles to be reverberating in our hearts and in our minds about how we are to give thanks biblically. Not the way the world does, but the way that Christ gives us the example through the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one. So let's read this together and we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Philippians chapter one, verse one, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and as is our custom we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to give us that gift of illumination. It is a gracious gift. We have done nothing to deserve you opening our eyes today. We've done nothing to merit that gift. And so we come before you and we just ask that you, by your grace, would open our eyes such that you would reveal to us exactly what it is we are supposed to know, to learn, to feel, to think, and to do from these verses. Pray that you would grow our unity together, that you would grow our affection for one another, that our love for one another would have a sense and an aura about it of the love of Christ Jesus for us, that we would take his love and bend it out to one another in such a way where we would feel and sense and experience the love of Christ here at this church. I pray that we would take our cue from Paul and follow his example in the way that we pray and the way that we speak to you about one another. And Father, I pray that above all, Christ would be exalted, that he being our greatest treasure and our soul's satisfaction, that he would be lifted up and magnified in this church service, in our time together in your word, that our hearts would grow greater affections for him and would love him more than anything this world has to offer. So Father, be pleased to do that as a gracious gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to merit it. And we just ask that you would grant us grace today. And we love you and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians chapter one, verses three through eight. It's one 
run-on sentence. It's a long run-on sentence where Paul is trying to stack it full of different aspects of how he is giving thanks for this church in Philippi. And as we go through these verses, we will see four different principles of biblical thanksgiving. Principle number one is this. If we are going to give thanks the way Paul gives thanks, the way we are supposed to give thanks to the Lord for one another, number one, give thanks to God as the source of all good gifts. Give thanks to God as the source of all of the good gifts that we experience. This is in verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. As he begins this prayer, he doesn't start with physical needs and praying for them. He'll talk about those things as we get to the end of this letter. But at the beginning, he front loads it with spiritual realities and praying for those spiritual realities in such a way where he's thanking God first and foremost, above and beyond anything else. He uses the word for thank, my God. The word thank is the Greek word eucharisteo, which just means a, a high praise. Thanksgiving is just abounding to the Lord. It's, uh, you can hear in that the Eucharist, right? A giving of thanks to the Lord. That's what we would use in our liturgy. A, a thanksgiving that's overflowing. It's just bubbling over with gratitude. And Paul loves this word. He uses this word 46 different times in his letter because he is just pouring out with gratitude for who God is and for what God's done. In all of his letters, these 46 times that he uses this word, he is just bleeding onto all of his people a gratitude and a gratefulness for who God is and for what he's done. And the way that he says it, the verb, the tense in this verb is a continual constant practice. So literally it would be, I am continually thanking my God every time I am remembering you. I'm continually thanking my God every time I'm remembering you. So for Paul, Thanksgiving isn't just an annual celebration. It's a daily preoccupation. And this is a very serious matter to him because if you turn with me to Romans, go back to Romans chapter one. This is a serious matter for Paul to give thanks because the opposite a heart that is filled with a lack of thanksgiving is the characteristic that Paul would give us of an unbeliever, of those who are under the wrath of God. Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So there are people who suppress a truth. They know a truth to be true, but they suppress it, okay? What is the truth? that they know, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. So how did God make it evident? And what is it that they know about God? Since the creation of the world, verse 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So everybody knows that there is a God. There is someone who made us. There's something out there that created everything. And everybody knows that through what has been made, they can see the intricacies of the world. They can see the glory in the majesty of creation. And so they can either suppress that truth in unrighteousness or they can receive it. Verse 21, Paul sums it up. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, as the creator, as the sovereign sustainer of all things, or give him thanks. They, they knew there was a God. They knew that he's out there. They knew that he created everything and yet they didn't honor him, but that's not enough. Paul says that's not what ultimately is condemning them. It's not just that they aren't honoring God, it's that they are not giving him thanks. They're not thanking him for who he is and for what he's done. So Paul is very serious about thanksgiving because a lack of thanksgiving is the characteristic of an unbelieving heart. And so my question this morning to us 
is are we a thankful people? Do we give thanks? Are we known for being grateful and filled with an overflowing thanksgiving in our hearts? Do you thank God? And if you do give thanks, if you are a thankful person, my next question is, what do you tend to give thanks for? Sometimes I think that our thanksgiving can come out like the guy in Luke 18, remember the Pharisee? I thank you, God. And then what does he say? That I'm awesome, right? That I'm, I'm not like these riffraff. I'm not I'm like these losers out there. I thank you, God, that I'm awesome. And so the thanksgiving that's directed to God ultimately is just directed to this man. I thank you that I'm amazing. I wonder how you and I are thankful. Maybe we give thanksgiving like the Pharisee. Maybe we give thanks for things that have happened in our lives, but we really end up taking ownership that they're a product of our abilities. Reminds me of the movie, the 1965 movie Shenandoah, where Jimmy Stewart plays a Virginian farmer during the Civil War. He's a recent widower, and his wife, before she passed away, said, I want you, uh, her deathbed, deathbed wish was, please raise our children to follow God. And so he attempts to do that. Seven kids following God as good Christian uh, men and women. And as the film begins, the family's all around the dinner table, and Jimmy Stewart prays this prayer. You can hear him praying this prayer. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it. We sowed it. We harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you just the same for this food that we're about to eat. <laughs> we did it all, but we're supposed to thank you. Uh, sometimes our Thanksgiving can be like that. God, I'm thanking you that I did everything. Instead, it should be like what James says. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. You remember this verse. James chapter 1 verse 17 James writes, every, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation and no shifting shadow. Every good thing. The emphasis in this verse is on every good and every perfect thing. Good literally meaning morally pure, useful and beneficial to us, and then perfect meaning complete. So every good thing that gives us completeness, that gives us all that we need. Uh, language of Psalm 23, that since the Lord is our shepherd, there is nothing that we need that we are lacking. And notice how James captures this expression. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down. And again, the tense there is constantly coming down, continually coming down. There's just this constant stream of God's never-ending benefits coming down from him to us out of heaven. And it's very interesting because this section fits right in the middle of a, a section on trials and temptation. Why? Why does God giving us every good gift come right in the middle of this trial of thanksgiving or of trials and uh, temptations? It's because every sin flows ultimately from a craving for something that we want that we don't have. And therefore, James says thankfulness is going to be the opposite of this. If you want to kill sin, you need to be thankful. If you want to kill sin, you need to kill that craving for what you want that you don't have and go back to a grateful heart that thanks the Lord for what he's given you. A truly grateful heart, as it were, takes the hook out of temptation. The opposite of this would just be a heart that has zero gratitude in it. We looked at this 
this last week in our study of Ecclesiastes. David Gibson writes, when we are not grateful for the little things, it's a very short step to no longer being grateful for anything at all. When we do not enjoy and savor and love and laugh and delight in the little things, then we are heading toward losing our delight in anything. And he said that leads us to that grumpiness that we don't want to be. So my question is, are you characterized by gratefulness or grumpiness? Grumpiness grows from that sin of ingratitude. So which characterizes you? Thankful or grumpy? If we are going to live out the kind of thanksgiving that Paul lives out in Philippians chapter 1, the first principle is we must give thanks to God as the source of all good gifts. Whatever good gifts you have in your life, God has graciously given them to you. It's all of God. It's not of us. And so we give thanks to him. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, we see a second principle, and that is if we are going to give thanks the way Paul encouraged us to, the example that he gives to us, number two, we need to make gratitude our daily habit. We need to make gratitude our daily habit. This is the end of verse three and into verse four. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, all of my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. There are so many superlatives in this sentence. Always, all, every. He's just stacking up this sentence so that no one could misunderstand or misinterpret his love for this church. Some people say that I use the word always too much, and I agree I do. But so does Paul. So I'm in good company, right? Always offering prayer in every prayer for you all, always doing this. In fact, this this sentence in verse four, uh, your translations would vary. They probably vary regarding what translation you have. I have the New American Standard here this morning, but um, you have probably different translations because this verse is so challenging to interpret and to translate in Greek because it's so stacked up with all of these alls and everys and we don't know where they're attached to. Literally, it would be this, always in every prayer of mine for you all with all joy in every prayer making. That's literally what this sentence says in Greek. He, he loves this church and he just wants to make sure no one's left out, that everyone knows they are loved by him. He also encourages us to do the same. Colossians chapter two, verses six through seven. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. That's what he tells the church in Colossae, overflow with gratitude. Colossians chapter three, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do all by giving thanks. So everything that we do should be done with gratefulness and with the spirit of thanksgiving. You can actually test and measure your spiritual maturity by this. How much time do you devote in your praying to just overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude? Why is this important? Why is it so important to be thankful? Well, just write down 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15. It's so important to be a thankful people because ultimately not only did we see in Romans 1 that a, a heart of a no thanksgiving, a heart of zero thanksgiving is a heart that is a heart of unbelief, but also once we share the gospel in a way where people are able to see the beauty of Christ, God opens their eyes, they receive him and they love him, their response will be thanksgiving. Their response will be an overflowing gratefulness to God. 2 Corinthians 4, 
verse 15, all things uh, are for your sake so that with the grace that is spreading to more and more people, that people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So as the grace spreads to more and more people, they will then abound with the giving of thanks. So as we share the gospel, if it takes root in somebody's life, it will abound in their heart to the glory of God through the giving of thanks. And we will do this on into eternity. Revelation chapter 11, verse 16 says that the elders, the 24 elders who sit on the throne, fall on their faces and cry out, we give you thanks, O God. Is gratitude your daily habit? If we are to worship the Lord and give him thanks the way that he deserves, we need to, number one, give him thanks as the source of every good gift. Number two, we need to make gratitude our daily habit. Number three, we must identify people as the object. We must identify people as the object. This is verse four, the back half of verse four. I always offer prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, for you all. Notice Paul begins not by thanking God for things, but by thanking God for people. Gordon Fee in his excellent commentary on Philippians says this, quote, Paul's thanksgivings are for people, for those special gifts whom God has brought into his life, who despite whatever frustration or grief they may cause him are invariably a source of great joy and thanksgiving. And then he says this, here I would offer is the beginning point for understanding the nature of Pauline spirituality. That giving of thanks is the very nature and essence of Paul's spirituality. He says, I give thanks to God for all of you. No one is excluded in that. He also tells us to do the same in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior. So he says in first Timothy, we should all be praying for all people. No one's excluded from our prayers. That's for governors, for presidents. That's for our ruling leaders and authorities. But here in Philippians, he's talking about the church and he says, there's nobody in this church that I'm not giving God thanks for. I don't just thank God for a group of the people in the church. I thank God for all of you. I thank God for even the two ladies that are in chapter four who are at odds with each other and fighting. I thank God for everyone who's in the congregation. And so he's reassuring every single member of this church in Philippi, whether they are opponents of Paul, whether they may have felt like they're outside of Paul's favor, there may be something going on that they don't really feel connected to him. He is saying, it's not true. I love you. I love everyone. And I'm thanking God for you all with no exception. I wonder if we could say the same. Can you say the same? Are there people in this church that you say, okay, God, I'm thankful that they're here, but I don't know why I'm thanking you for them. Or I don't really feel like I'm very thankful for them. Or I really wish that they would go to a different church or I don't really enjoy hanging out with them. I wonder if there are people that you would look around and you'd say, okay, I praise the Lord for this group and I don't really know about this group over here. Sometimes when we think about our life as the body of Christ, we're the body of Christ. Sometimes I think we get annoyed at certain parts of the body. Remember when I was in 
high school. I actually played basketball in this gym. Uh, I played for a different school, but we were playing against this school. And as I was playing against the school, I'll never forget it. I had an ingrown toenail. And so every step that I would make with my right foot would just be pain, just absolute pain. Started bleeding, went through my sock. Uh, during halftime, I went back uh, to the locker room, took my shoe off, and there was just blood oozing out and everything. If I look at my ingrown toenail, which caused me great pain, do I say, you know what, that's it, I'm done, and just cut it off, throw it away. Done with that one. It's annoying, it's causing pain, and I don't enjoy it, so let's get rid of it. No, obviously we don't do that. Go to the doctor, figure out what to do, treat it, get it back to a place where it's not an ingrown toenail anymore, it's fine. But I think when it comes to the spiritual life of the body of Christ, I think we tend to live out the former. I think we look at each other and we go, you know what, there's something going on. There's somebody I have an issue with causing pain, causing irritation. I would either like to cut them out or I'll leave. Instead of saying, no, God has given us the ability to grow, to heal, to not allow these things to fester, but to treat them. So my question to you this morning is, are you enjoying the Christians in your life? Not enduring the Christians in your life. Are you enjoying the believers in CBC? Are you rejoicing that they are here or regretting that they are here? Are you delighted in them or disappointed by them? Are you blessed by what they offer and how they participate in the gospel? Or are you bummed by something that they are doing that you don't like or aren't doing that you would like? Are you affectionate towards the flock or are you afflicted by the flock? And I think the question begins with, what are you looking for? When a vulture flies over the desert, it finds a dead carcass. Why? Because that's what it's looking for. When a hummingbird flies over the desert, it finds a flower. Why? Because that's what it's looking for. Are you a vulture or are you a hummingbird? What are you looking for in the church? Jared Wilson says this, quote, It is difficult to think of our church as a gift when we set our minds on the deficiencies of those around us. We might think the preaching should be better, the music should be more engaging. We might think that the people should be more welcoming, more hip, or just more numerous. But when we rehearse in our own mind the faults and failings of the people with whom we share church membership, we practically forget the good news that put us all together in the first place. We might not have picked this family for ourselves, but God did, and his ways are infinitely wiser than ours. Do you choose to focus on the problems that you see in the lives of others? Or do you choose instead to focus on the grace that God has given to them and to you as well? There's only one thing that we walk around, other than the word of God, there's only one thing that we walk around in life bumping into and interacting with that is eternal, and that is people. That's souls. That's the people around you. So if you want to invest in eternity, invest yourself in the lives of the people around you, starting first and foremost with this amazing family. So, are you grateful? Do you look for deficiencies or do you delight in the grace that God has given to us in this church family? I've had the privilege of officiating and overseeing many different memorial services and funerals. And it's always a privilege, even as we've studied in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to the house in the morning than house of celebration. That's the end of all life. It's always sobering. It's always a celebration for those who we know are in heaven uh, and we long and grieve with hope to be with them. But every funeral, there's always a point where somebody will stand up, usually multiple people, and they'll talk about the person who passed away. And they will just share how 
amazing that person was, how they delighted in that individual, all the things that they loved about that individual. And I would just plead with all of us, don't wait until someone's funeral to say those things about them. Say those things now to those individuals. Do it today. Don't wait. So if we are to give thanks in the way that Paul models for us, number one, we must give thanks to God as the source of every gift that he's given. Number two, we must make gratitude our daily habit. Number three, we must identify people as the objects. So we're not thanking God for things primarily. We're thanking God for people. And finally, number four, we must ensure that the gospel is the priority in our thanksgiving. We must ensure that the gospel is the priority in our thanksgiving. Ensure that the gospel is the priority inside of our thanksgiving. So we're giving thanks to God for every good gift, being grateful every day, identifying people as the object of our thanksgiving. And inside of that thanksgiving, we are giving the gospel the main priority and the main foundation. This is in verse five. Paul says that he gives uh, prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation. Some of your translations might say fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That word participation or fellowship, that Greek word koinonia, to, to partner in a cause that's greater than you, that's greater than the sum of all that you stand for. You all get together and it's not the, the commonalities in life and socioeconomic standing. It's, it's one greater purpose. There's something that goes deeper and higher and greater than anything that all of you make up. And that is the gospel. It means sharing in something. It means being united by something. And Paul says, that which unites us as a church in Philippi and as a church at CBC, that which unites us is the gospel. Paul doesn't say, I'm so glad that I've got friends like you who love bowling as much as I do. I'm so glad that I got to plant a church with a bunch of people that enjoy the same hobbies that I like. No, he says, I'm so glad I got to be with you who love the gospel and who are committed to serving the Lord through the gospel proclamation work. Think about the Philippian church. When you look at them, they don't really have a lot in common. Lydia, a slave girl, a jailer. Imagine them getting together for Thanksgiving dinner. They're just hanging out. So what do you do for a living? Oh, a former slave. What do you do? Well, I tried to kill myself as a jailer. But we're just, how do we have a conversation, right? This is, uh, there's no commonality outside of Jesus has saved us. Jesus has loved us. Jesus has forgiven us. And that's all that matters. No matter what our differences might be, we are united by a commitment to the gospel. What binds us is not the common interest we have. It's our partnership in the gospel. Jared Wilson says, the gift of faith makes the gift of the church vitally real and utterly unique. Listen to what he says. I love this. Of any other organization and community, People can say, well, sure, it makes all the sense in the world that those people would be together. And of course, that makes sense in the world, but the church is a heavenly reality and it is a gift from God. So your church should be a place only explainable by the gospel. People should look at our churches and think there must be something to this God thing, to this gospel thing, because there's no other explanation of why those people would get together, much less actually love each other. Our churches should be, I love this. He says, our churches should be a living apologetic for the strange reality of grace. 
I love when we're playing basketball and Sundays at the park, we'll sometimes go to the park and we'll have a group of five, six, seven people and we'll start playing and another group will show up and they'll say, hey, do you want to play? And we'll be a team, they'll be a team and we'll play each other. Somewhere in the midst of that conversation, they say, who are you guys? Where, where are you guys from? You're not a team because you got young people that could be in high school or college and then you got old people like me. You're clearly not in school. Like what's going on? But you're also clearly not a family because you're all different ages, different ethnicities. Who are you? And we're able to say, we are a family. We're the family of God. We go to church together. We all go to the same church and you should come too. I love having breakfast with my brother, Glenn. I had breakfast a couple times with him and one time I walked in later than him because he's always early and I walked in and he was already sitting at a table and the waitress up front said, oh, uh, I think your dad's already here because uh, she had seen us together before. And I just smiled. I said, that's so sweet. And she, is he your dad? And I said, uh, no, no, he's a spiritual father to me though. And I'm able to share the gospel. We get to hang out as a spiritual father to a spiritual son in a way where we love each other because of our commitment to the gospel. That's what entangles our hearts together. And that's what keeps us from breaking apart. I love the realities that we see in our church of living life together. Jared Wilson continues, the church is a very peculiar community, isn't it? As with our blood family, we don't really get to choose who's in and who's out. But unlike all of our blood family, we will have to live with our brothers and sisters in the faith for all eternity. So we should probably start figuring out how to do that now. Jim Boy says, if you unite with other Christians on the basis of affluence, you'll exclude the poor. If you unite along social lines, you'll exclude those outside of your level of society, be it high or low. If you unite intellectually, you'll exclude either the simple or the intelligent. However you do it, the witness of the church will suffer. So how thankful must we be that God did not establish the fellowship of his children along these lines? Our fellowship is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed the gospel, they shared the gospel, they supported the gospel, they prayed for the gospel, and that is our commonality, our fellowship in and participation in the gospel. So if we're to give thanks the way that Paul gives us the example here, we will give thanks to God as the source of all good gifts, make gratitude our daily habit, identify people as the object, and ensure that the gospel is the priority in our thanksgiving. And just notice really quickly what this produces. This kind of thanksgiving leads to some awesome results, okay? Number one, it leads to confidence. Verse six, uh, for I am confident of this very thing. Because you're all involved in gospel ministry, I'm confident that the God who began the work in you will be faithful to complete it. Confidence, not in just the people of God, but in the God of the people. And if there's anybody who has reason to doubt the work of God in his life, it'd be Paul because Paul's stuck in jail. Paul's in prison and he was in prison because of the proclamation of the gospel. So if there's anyone who could think perhaps the gospel could be enchained in such a way where it will not break forth, it'd be Paul. But Paul says, no. Paul says, I know that the gospel will never be imprisoned or enchained. It will always go out. He's confident because God who begins the good work will perfect it. Number two, it leads to affection. It leads to love. It leads to affection. He says, verse seven, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And then he goes down in verse eight, God is my witness how I long for you all. I love you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Do you seek out others around you to build them up and to encourage them? Do you have true affection and love for those around you who here claim the name of Christ? What excuses do you often bring to not hang out with certain members of the body of Christ? Paul says, because I give thanks to God in these four ways for you all, it leads to confidence about you and your walk with the Lord. It leads to affection for you. And finally, number three, it leads to praying again for you, praying for you, verse nine, and this I pray. So he began by saying, I'm praying, and he ends by saying, and that prayer leads me to keep on praying. Prayer will kickstart this whole process of thanking God and praying yet again, and will motivate you to live these realities in your life. He prays for four things, that they would live lives full of love, full of wisdom, full of integrity, and full of fruit. So those four aspects of our thanksgiving lead to three amazing results of confidence in the people and the work of God, in the people, affection for the people, and praying about the people. So do we give thanks this way? We will never have the response that Paul has about this church that he loves so dearly if we are not looking for the work of God in those around you. So, to that end, I would like to live this out right now in our church family. I would like to apply what Paul just did in front of our eyes here in this moment with our church family. I think we can all say that we are incredibly thankful and grateful for the ministry that Gina and Christy and Casey have done in always, every Sunday, having just an amazing spread of food out there. But that food out there is not just for food's sake, although that's an amazing gift. The purpose of that ministry is for us being able to gather around something, pick up a donut, pick up some coffee, and gather in a beautiful Lord's Day to dialogue about how was your week? How can I pray for you? I walk out those doors after I get my microphone on. I walk out, I open the doors. I see a crowd of people. Some are laughing, some are crying, some are praying, some are talking. It's just the most amazing experience to watch that. And that is happening because of the ministry gift of Gina and Christy and Casey. I think of our brother, Jose Lujan. Where's Jose? I saw him somewhere. I think he took, there he is, Jose. We were over at Jose's house. Jose works, um, public storage, sharing stories of some fun, crazy experiences with customers. And got to share an amazing testimony. You talked to him afterwards. Got to share an amazing testimony of somebody that was obviously going through a trial and as Jose was hearing what this customer was saying, just softly, gently, uh, asking hard questions, drawing it out, found out that this person had gone through some serious loss. And Jose just says, hey, can I pray for you? And right then and there, just think of how weird that would be for the next customer walking in, right? Open public storage. Wait, am I in the right place? There's a guy praying. What's going on here? Jose says, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Think about Lisa. The way that she, if you've ever talked with Lisa Lujan, you know, it will only take about one and a half questions to get to the very bottom of your soul, right? She doesn't waste any time. Hey, how was your week? Tell me everything, right? Just goes right into it. She's so generous, very thoughtful. She just taught. She just shared the truth of God's word regarding the idols of our hearts and the way that we struggle with that. And she shared so honestly, openly, transparently at the women's 
ministry last week. Think about our brothers Adonis and Glenn and the way that they're just evangelism machines. I, I think that Adonis probably walks up, you know those, those creatures that are outside the, the supermarkets that you put the 25 cents in and they kind of move around? I think Adonis walks up and gives a tract to one of those animals, right? Like, hey, have you heard the gospel? Anything that looks potentially human, they're telling them about Jesus. And they do so with such compassion. Think about our brother Glenn. He's in our Wednesday night study. He always talks about preaching repentance and how we need to include repentance in the gospel. I love talking theology with him. I love talking eschatology with him. Anybody who has spent any amount of time with our brother Glenn knows that if you start talking about end times, he is going to start diving right into the scriptures. And it's not a matter of his opinion or his preference. It's a matter of what does the text say. He cares deeply about the scriptures and he is so generous. I think about Shelley, his precious wife, which by the way, they celebrated 45 years of marriage yesterday. Maybe, yes. Amen. I think about the way that Shelley disciples women in our church teaches. She is so loving. We've been praying for uh, Glenn's dad at our um, Bible study, and she is so faithful in loving him and encouraging him, pointing him to Jesus, loving him with the love of Christ. I'm thankful for Kelly. I'm thankful for the way that she uh, does those prayer emails every week a little synopsis of the sermon, her own practical application of what she took away with it. And then just uh, her heart is so evident and on display in the way that she communicates with all of us about how we can be praying for each other. Think about the way that she's heading up the women's ministry and the way that she is planning for the retreat coming up. She's such a, a fun, kind, faithful friend. Think about a lot of People that, and by the way, I have uh, seven pages of notes of people, so I'm going to have to pick and choose here. I, I think about a lot of people who aren't seen, who mo most of us wouldn't even know what they do. And Kim comes to mind. Our dear sister Kim, no longer Joseph, now Whitaker. Our dear sister Kim, who was so faithful when we were doing the children's ministry in the little baby room, she would get crafts for the kids, and these crafts were exquisite crafts. Like we, the, our kids would come home with these crafts and we'd think, where were you during church? Like, how did you make that at church? And somehow there was always some spiritual element to him. Kim just loves the kids so faithfully. She would always stock the prize box so faithfully. And my kids are very grateful for that. Thank you so much, Kim. I think of our dear sister, Carissa. Where's Carissa? Carissa... If you don't know, she is an amazing cook, and she bakes these cookies. And I feel like at almost every CBC event that we've had, your cookies somehow find their way into them. And I hear people that are eating them going, what? This is amazing. Who made this? Like, where did you get these? And when we say it's Carissa, people are blown away. Okay, I, I need to get more cookies from her. And I think about, again, the way that she facilitates ministry by using her giftedness to encourage us and to edify us and to create a, an environment where we can hang out and love one another. I think about our, our brother and sister, uh, Phil and, and Pam Gill, who normally sit in the back where Jose is currently sitting. They're faithful greeters. If, if you ever come to church on time or a little bit late, you'll see them out there and they'll say hi. They're faithful greeters. 
Phil is a faithful deacon, faithful example of marriage, of loving one another, of encouraging uh, a godly example to a younger generation. And they sit in the back because they are always protecting and watching over us. Phil is, he is, he would love to be up here sitting up front. And he said, I want to sit in the back so that I can make sure that I'm watching over everybody. And that if there's something weird that happens, somebody that comes in, I want to make sure I'm watching. He's so selfless in the way that he cares for us. I think about all of us as a church. We've had so many babies being born. We've had injuries that have happened. We've had people that have gotten sick. Kelly sends out an email that says, uh, there's a, a meal train for this. And about three hours later, the meal train's full, right? It goes so quickly, instantly full. I think of Jeremiah and Gina on Wednesday night. I think Gina said something to the effect of, this is the most hospitable church I've ever been a part of because they are uh, getting married in January, um, trying to furnish their apartment. And that was genuinely a, a point of concern for both of you. How are we going to furnish this? We don't have money. We're not going to be able to do this. And I said, just watch God work. Just watch him work. And I think they fully furnished their apartment and didn't spend a cent, right? All because you all said, oh, I've got something you can have. I've got a truck you can borrow to move it. The generosity and hospitality in our church is absolutely mind-boggling. I think of our tech team, obviously more visible than maybe most areas of ministry, but without which our ministry wouldn't really run. I think of the ways that they step in, they troubleshoot things, they're here early, they're here late, and they do so with joy. And, and they do so with so much joy that I remember, I think Amber has run the PowerPoints for probably 70 years. I think that she, she has just done this for ages. And I remember Casey went up to her and said, you need a break. You can't do this every Sunday. And Amber said, I love doing this every Sunday. But Casey, out of the kindness of her heart, said, We'll get more people to rotate in here so that you don't have to do it every Sunday so you can enjoy being a part of the congregation not having to serve on a Sunday morning. Casey, by the way, I think just, she meets needs that people don't even know they have. You know people that have that gift? And they'll say, hey, you need this. And you go, no, I don't. Wow, actually I do. I didn't even know I needed that. She's so attuned to the fine details that we need. I think of our our small, small groups, our little groups, the, the groups that meet, two, two people, three people, that is the reason why people feel known, loved, encouraged, heard, transparent, honest, open in our church. Those groups create a safe environment for hearts to be exposed and transformed. I think of people who preach in this pulpit, like Sergio and Sam and Ricky and Marty, who love to jump in here and share the word of God with joy and with conviction. Think of my brother Marty, we got to have breakfast this last week, always tells me about books he's reading, always tells me we always walk through history together and we apply it biblically and practically and spiritually into our lives. We also have a lot of fun. We laugh a lot together as we're eating breakfast together. Think about our dear sister Grace, who uh, Grace hasn't even been able to be here that often the last couple of months because she's been making trips over to Uganda to the orphanage that she began that now has hundreds of kids sharing the gospel, pleading with people to love these kids with the love of Christ. I think of our dear sister, Joan. She's always asking, what more can I do? I need to get involved. I want to serve. And we just say, we want to serve you. We want to love you. We want to encourage you. And so she has people over for lunch. She's had my wife over for lunch. She is plugged into the small group on Thursday nights. She donates things when we have a a list of things, items that we need donated to our kids' ministry, she picks half of that list and says, I'll donate all of those things to the list. 
Think of our brother Jake Forbes, who jumped in and started helping to lead, co-lead a Bible study at his house when he had just been a member for a few weeks and just said, you can use my house. I'd love to jump in and help. I think of our brother Michael, who faithfully runs the sound department for sure, but he's also a faithful impact at his school. Uh, if you've ever been able to talk with him about what he does at school, he does basically the job of three different people. He's constantly just working tirelessly from the morning to the evening. And he's working with kids who need Jesus, who need hope, who need the gospel. And he is, that's his greatest concern, is how do I give them Christ? I think of his wife, Hannah, when we were doing our demo at our house, she said, tell me when, because I'm going to come over and I love doing demos. Who does that? Who says that? That's not what you say. You say, oh, when are you doing demo? I'm on vacation that week. I'm sorry. Or else I would help you. Think of our dear sisters, Becca and Courtney, who always create fun environments for us to have amazing events together to fellowship with one another. And obviously the Joshes, who are the anchors for everything that they're doing and the people who just encourage them. Think of our brother, Bob. Bob Kern began a ministry at CBC. I don't know if you know that this began, but it happened. And it's the PE department. We have a physical education department of CBC. It's a ministry. And if you're not on the text group conversation, go talk to him. Because if you want to play pickleball at two in the morning, he's ready. He's texting you. If you want to go play golf with him, pitch black, can't see anything, he'll play with you. This is no joke. We were going to play golf at 5.30 in the morning one, one morning. Calls me. He calls me at 4.45. And I thought he was going to call to cancel. Like, I can't make it. I'm so sorry. He calls to say, hey, can't wait to see you at the golf course. I'm heading over there myself. And I said, that's great. I'll see you there. And he goes, well, let's start the meeting now. Let's start talking. So we're talking on the way over in my car. We golf together. And then I say, great. That was awesome. Thanks so much. Give him a hug. All right, I'll see you later. Get in my car. Turn it on call from Bob Kern. Thought maybe he had lost something or forgotten something. Hey, can you grab something for me? Or I forgot something. Hey, that was a great golf game. That was awesome. That was, hey, you know, I have something more we got to talk about. We just kept talking. Bob checks in on people all the time. His wife, Marcy, is so encouraging and she has an amazing ministry in the public school system with the five-day clubs. Guys, we need to be praying for her. She's a missionary in the public school system, five-day clubs. I think of Tori. You guys know Tori. Tori shares the gospel with everyone. She planned and executed the Passover Seder, which many people told me was the best Passover Seder they had ever been to. We did it up there in the library a few years ago, and it was all her. She, she thought of it, dreamt it up, made it happen. She includes everyone in her activities. She invites everybody to be involved in whatever she's doing. She wants to live life with the people around her. She hosts parties. She invites people to come over. She always includes people in the decisions that she's making to make sure that she's being wise in how she's making those decisions. I think of our dear sister Tess, who was singing this morning. She literally moved from Oregon to L.A., I'm going to say number one, to be a part of his church, number two, to get married. Maybe that's the wrong one. She literally moved here to be a part of our church. If you haven't read her article, read the article that she wrote for Gospel Coalition about CBC and about why she loves our church family. 
And she's already been so hospitable in using her home to host a Bible study. Obviously, Sergio and Daniela are amazing. Sergio texting me like the day after Owen was born saying, hey, I don't know if I'm going to make it to church. I really want to. And me going, what in the world? Like he has a priority to be here with you all. And Sergio and Daniela have been so encouraging for me and my wife. We can go to them about anything and they are never judgmental, never critical. They're always so discerning. They ask the best questions. They're a, a safe couple. Think of our brother Austin, who's plugged into our Bible study on Wednesday night. He had a, uh, a list. Remember the bucket list chapter that we had in our Ecclesiastes study? That's, that's his chapter. Talk to him afterwards about his bucket list, because he has a bucket list. Was it 22 things? 22 things for 2022. And you said, no more. We can't keep doing that. 23 things for 2023. Uh, one of it was to, to read through the whole Old Testament. You said you read 150 chapters on your plane ride home from Mexico. Uh, have you finished First Chronicles? Not yet. Okay. Everybody ask him. He needs to finish First and Second Chronicles, and then he'll be done. Um, he blesses our study with so many insights to practical living, uh, to the truths that we know. I think of our brother, John Basmajian, who is our resident politician, by the way. He, if you have any political questions, go to him, talk to him. He asks so many questions, and the way that he asks them, and usually they're very, very intellectual, academic questions, but the way that he asks them, number one, they're always practical. They're always, so what? How does this apply? But number two, they never leave people out. These crazy, high theological, academic questions, he always includes people in those questions. Think of his wife, Julia, how incredibly happy she always is. She is so sweet and kind, supportive of her husband, and she also has a job in the LAUSD system in um, teaching that, man, there's some challenging students. And her greatest desire is to share Christ with them. And you have to be shrewd as serpents as you do that. You gotta be praying for these individuals. Think of our dear sister, Cheryl. She, if she ever hears that somebody is going through a trial, they're sick, they're hurt, she won't even jump on the meal train. She will just send a meal to you. Um, we've gotten a couple of those where, who is this from? And we text Cheryl, oh, it's from her. She did it. Think of our brother Mark who helped cook yesterday, who was in an industry similar to Courtney, similar to Austin. It's a very dark place and he is a light in that industry and trying to show forth Jesus as amazing. I think of Julia and Eunice, who I think are back home for Thanksgiving break right now. The, the sweetest thing that I've ever seen from them, and they're incredibly sweet. Those of you who know them know they're, they're just the kindest people in the world. The sweetest thing that I've seen personally from, from my experience with them is how they include my daughter. They talk to my daughter like she's a 21-year-old. And those of you who talk to my daughter know that sometimes she has flashes of brilliance, and sometimes she talks like she's 10. And... It's the ongoing dialogue where you're like, yes, okay, can we get out of this? And, and Julia and Eunice love her and care for her and make her feel so loved, so special. Think of Aaron and Annalisa who started coming to our church, just jumped in, started serving through uh, leading worship through song. Think of Annalisa who jumped in and said, hey, I'd love to start a kid's choir. I think of Melinda who is... Um, 
just an amazing source of joy in teaching us how to love and enjoy creation and the beauty around us. She's so hospitable. She meets so many different needs that our church has. I think of Rick, who uses his love for working out to bring other men into working out with him so that he can uh, shower them with an encouragement and a love and practical wisdom. He serves at open arms with his free time. I think of our dear sister Katie and Rosie who were um, both baptized recently and their testimonies of just honest, open transparency, their willingness to serve and to love our body. I think of our brother Daniel who's uh, persevering through all sorts of trials that would just get so annoying and he is trusting the Lord and he is trusting God's goodness and God's sovereignty. I think about the kids in our church. I think uh, Autumn, precious little Autumn, she wrote a note to Ryder Kumar who is our missionary in India. She wrote a letter to him and Ryder told uh, someone who related to me that that was the sweetest letter of encouragement that he's ever received as a missionary. And precious little Autumn wrote it. Precious little Abby. Those of you who know Abby know that she is, um, she's going to be a, a, an amazing uh, pro-life advocate. She's already praying for that. She was at our um, Bible study on Wednesday night. We were going around asking prayer requests and she said, I'm praying for family members who don't know Jesus. And then she said, quote, and of course, the matter of abortion. She's however old, eight years old, going on 28, right? She is just amazing. She's seven. She's amazing. She has a contagious passion for victims, for the innocent, for the needy. I think of Ethan Walters, who almost every Sunday says, hey, can I help with anything? Can I help tear down and he grabs chairs, moves them. I say, go see Jeremiah. He goes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah tells him what to do. Brothers and sisters, again, the list goes on and on. I'm having to cut this out. But this is how we need to, in taking our cue from Paul, live out thanking God for the participation that we have in the gospel, for the family that he's given to us to knit our hearts together in love and unity and to celebrate that. Not just this week of Thanksgiving, but every time we get together. This is the most loving group of people I've ever been a part of. And I pray that our love would just excel more and more, that we would keep growing in our affection for one another as our love for Jesus keeps growing and growing. And so to that end, let's practice these realities today. Let's live these out. Even as we sing, let's live these realities out, worshiping the Lord for who he is, for what he's done as the object of our every affection and as the giver of every good gift. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing word that is so practical, that leads us to, to worship and to give thanks. And so we want to sing. We want to sing out of the overflow of our hearts. We want with gratitude and gratefulness to praise you for who you are, for what you've done, and for our amazing church family. This is a gift. And it is a gift that you have accomplished all by your power and for your good purposes. So may we thank you now in light of everything that we've just learned. May we thank you with gratitude and gratefulness in our hearts. And may, above all, Christ be the center of our thanksgiving today. We pray in his name. Amen.